Hello and welcome to this incredibly exciting episode of Matifile, where I was lucky enough to speak with anthropologist and author of the book Owners of the Map, Motorcycle Taxi Drivers, Mobility and Politics in Bangkok, Dr. Claudio Sopranzetti. The conversation was incredibly interesting and covered a broad range of things that I haven't actually spoken about on the podcast before. We talk about things such as the divide between centre and periphery in Thailand, why there is problems of migration and overdevelopment of just Bangkok while rural areas are being ignored, and symbolism in protest and the use of imagery and political symbols as signs of dissent. We talk about all that and a lot more in our conversation. Here we go. So hello and welcome to Matifile. I'm here with Dr. Claudio Sopranzetti, who is who has recently published a book on Thai migration and social movements, focusing on uh, motorcycle taxi drivers in Thailand, which is a topic that I haven't touched on at all in the podcast so far. So thank you so much for joining us today, sir. My pleasure. <laughs> I want to start with a broad question, and it's okay if the answer is brief. Um, what is the history of urban migration in Thailand? When did it start? Did it start because of economic reasons? And how has it evolved to today? All right. Um, well, the history of uh, Thai migration actually is kind of connected um, with the sort of the relationship between Thailand and China. So basically, when Bangkok emerged as a city, we're talking about the end of the 18th century, um, most of its working class, most of its workers were actually Chinese migrants. And then basically when Mao came to power, there was a kind of blockage to the migration of Chinese migrants. And so at that point, basically Bangkok needed workers. And in order to create this kind of demand for migration, um, basically a new tax was imposed on the countryside of Thailand, a tax on rice export. And the purpose of that tax was two things, basically keep the price of rice low and therefore the price of labor low, and the other purpose was to basically convince people to stop producing rice and moving into the city. And so very much since the very beginning, um, this is a history of a country that basically puts all of its resources into its capital city by depleting uh, the rest of the country from resources, both rice and agricultural resources, as we're saying, but also human resources. So after that, basically after the Second World War, you start having this massive migration from the Thai Northeast, which is the most populous region and became as an effect, the most poor region into Bangkok. And the people I did research with were in fact, the kind of uh, newcomers of this long history of people who migrated to Bangkok originally really for economic reasons. And has the reason evolved since then? Because I understand that in the 1950s, when Bangkok started industrializing towards the 1970s, there was a lot of economic impetus to move. Now has it become more of a social and cultural thing or is it still mainly economically driven? I think, I mean, I think it's, you know, sometimes it's hard to separate those two dimensions, but I think they're very much um, in connection with one another, right? So just to give you an example, Bangkok in a city is a city that now has about 70% of uh, university graduates of the entire country. So there's on one side this economic pool and on the other one, there's a kind of social and cultural dimension of saying, you know, if you're outside Bangkok, you're mildly irrelevant. And so there's this sense of, you know, I moved to the city because I'm looking for a better life, both economically and in terms of the kind of stimulus I have. So very often, you know, you migrate to the city because you want to give a better life to your kids or you want to be closer to a center of power. So I think those two dimensions really go hands in hands in the present. And what does that mean for the people who still live in rural areas of Thailand and outside Bangkok? Do, is there any political will? Are they involved? Are they disenfranchised? What is the political sentiment among people outside Bangkok? Yeah, I think, I mean, there, there's two or three different dimensions at play here. And once again, it's, they're both related to internal 
uh, economic and social and political reasons, but also to a kind of international pressures in different historical moments. So many of the people that migrated in Bangkok in the last decades were, they were coming from a region that historically during the Cold War had a communist insurgency. So I had a sense somehow that the central state didn't represent them. And they were looking often to, to China as a model of a different kind of organization of center and periphery in the country. So you have on one side that level, and so a sense that if you are outside Bangkok, the state doesn't really care about you. So a lot of the work that I'd done um, in the countryside was really talking to people who would say, you know, there's very few moments in our history in which we saw the central state doing something for us. And very much the political mobilization uh, that happened at the beginning of the 2000s was a demand to say, we want to be part of the decision-making. We are the majority of the population. We want to have a say. And there's a, a Thai scholar and geographer who says that what, um, the, relation, the political relationship in Thailand is normally the countryside elect and Bangkok overturns. So there's especially in the last 20 years, this kind of phenomenon by which whenever a government who somehow is attentive to the countryside, who is focused on decentralization of power and resources, you will eventually have a military coup or a judiciary coup taking away their power. So over the last 20 years, to really see this dynamic of people in the countryside feeling disenfranchised, asking for representation, electing their own government, and then having some sort of central power overthrowing that government. And you see this happening in 1992, uh, 1991, in 2006, in 2010, in 2014. So you have kind of a variety and a, and a multiplicity of, of these events happening over time. How did Thaification, which was done pretty aggressively in the 1970s with General Prem and General Sarit, where they tried to unify all of Thailand. What did that mean for people who perhaps related more to China in the north or perhaps to Malaysia in the deep south? What happened to their sentiments and how they related to the state? Yeah, I think that's that's a really good and central question, right? Like, um, what you're describing at that process of unification in many ways was very much historically a consequence of contact with colonial power. And so what the Thai state did basically was saying, okay, we are this kind of uh, in-between land uh, between French Indochina and British-dominated um, South Asia and you know Malaysia and Singapore. And in order to remain autonomous, they actually end up picking up a lot of the strategy that colonial power was um, enforcing. And one of the strategy was really unifying the nation under the idea of Thailand as the land of the Thai people. And that's interesting because up until the 1940s, basically, Thailand was not called Thailand, it was called Siam. And the idea of Siam was a country that wasn't really attached to one specific group, one specific ethnic group. And Thailand became that, that, that kind of new face of the nation that was connected to the Thai, which, is our, which are the majority, but one of many groups in the country. So I think the other aspect of what you were asking before is precisely this. It's not just a sense of disenfranchisement from the state, but it's also a sense of we are actually not the same people. And the people who rule us are um, somehow others. And so there, there is a kind of history of irredentism and autonomy request, both, as you're mentioning, from the Northeast, which has, you know, traditionally Lao connection. The Northeast, where I did a lot of my research outside of the city, uh, speaks Lao, in fact, doesn't speak Thai. Similarly, the southern part of Thailand really speak Malay. So you have this kind of linguistic entity and cultural entity that gets pushed into one nation out of this colonial relation and then historically continue to demand some sort of autonomy uh, or some sort at least to, to have a say in, in how the country should be ruled. So that dynamic is really central to a lot of the mobilization that starts from the countryside. Now, what's interesting in this moment is that the current mobilization are actually not starting from the countryside. So we're entering a phase in which something new is happening. I was about to ask actually about the mobilization change, because now, especially in current protests, mobilization has started from university students and high school students 
within Bangkok city. And in fact, this happened, I think, even in the 1972 protests against General Prem, also they started in the city center and then spread outside. Why are these two types of protests and mobilizations different in perhaps the magnitude of the protest, but also the success of the social movement against the state? Yeah, uh, I mean, I think what you're saying, it's very perceptive in a way. I think there's two different genealogy of social movement in Thailand. One is the movement that starts in the city and starts from really member of the urban elite, younger member of the urban elite, who in some ways often look outside of Thailand as a model. So in the 1970s, the student protest was very much attached to, you know, a, a global turn of, of student protest after 1968, in the beginning of the 70s, and was very much a protest which asked for democracy, you know, and the idea of representation and participation in the, in the state, uh, often by people who were looking abroad as a model. What's happening right now is actually very similar. There's a thing that has developed among the students now called the Milk Tea Alliances, which is basically an alliance between Hong Kong, Taiwanese, and Thai students, demanding similar relation and similar change of organization in relation to authoritarian power. So that's, you know, that's one of the history that it's more international, has to do with like an idea of how um, really Asian power should be understood, uh, and now we should try, according to them, to get out of this exceptional model of Asian value. Then you have the other type of mobilization, which is very much starting from, you know, average people, um, people in the countryside, or people who are from the countryside who move to Bangkok. But what unite them both, um, I mean, what differentiate them is that those second mobilization tend to have more a sense of a Thai specificity, right? There's something specific about Thailand that they're dealing with. And they tend to be much less connected to international organization, much more radicated in the territory. But I think what unites them both, it goes back to the first question you asked, is that they both agree that Bangkok is what matters. That in some ways you need to bring your protest to Bangkok in order to have an effect on the whole nation. So there's a kind of acceptance of the fact that the real political stage in the country is its capital city. And that's where these things are played out. Okay, I'll, I wanna come back to social movements in a second, but I wanna focus on this distinction between Bangkok and the periphery of Thailand, because seemingly Bangkok becomes a political stage for any sort of change to happen in Thailand. But again, you mentioned earlier that people get elected because of rural populations, because typically those are the constituencies that have a lot of swing voters when it comes to Thai context, etc. Why has it been so hard then to develop the social rural areas other than Bangkok, considering perhaps a minority of politicians and legislative assemblies are going to be elected from Bangkok itself, as opposed to from regional constituencies? Yeah, I think there's, there's two basic points. And here, one is to take a little bit of a more detailed look of how um, the electoral structure of the country works. And what I mean specifically is that a lot of the people I work with, for instance, people who are from the countryside, who migrate in Bangkok, who live in Bangkok, who in fact, in many ways, they are Bangkokians, so they've been there for a very long time. They continue to vote in the countryside. So it's very common for people to move into the city, but leaving their family and their kids and their registration for electoral reason back into the countryside. So the, the election day in Thailand is a day of massive migration. It's a day where people go back to their villages and vote in their villages. So there's this kind of uh, problem of observation where people who are in Bangkok, in fact, they formally vote outside of Bangkok. So there's one element. And the second element goes back to what we're talking about, the dynamic of centralization and decentralization, right? Even if the vote is done outside, um, there's a strong sense that all the power is held in Bangkok anyway. And so in some ways, you know, if you want to stage a protest, say, in front of parliament, it will have to be in Bangkok. If you want to stage a project, protest in front of the royal palace, it will have to be in Bangkok. If you want to stage a project against the electoral commission, it will be in Bangkok. So there, there's, um, there's a kind of long history of uh, refusal to decentralize power, which I think goes, I mean, it's similar to many other nations in, in the region. 
when you have this kind of primacy of a city and therefore that becomes the stage. Now, during the former protests, the 2010 protests, which I studied in my recent book, um, there was a strong attempt to say, well, why not to expand the social movement out in the countryside? Why not to have protests? And for the first time in a long time, there were a lot of protests outside Bangkok. But in some ways, the press and mobilization is once again, you know, as, as a side effect, is once again saying, well, actually what matters is the city and everything else is kind of forgettable. Which I think also uh, account for the fact that people who were active in the anti-military protest of 2010, they are lukewarm in relation to the present protest because they see, okay, that's, we share an agreement, we share an ideological connection, but it's not us who is always running the game. It's, you know, university kids from rich family in Bangkok. Yeah, I'm curious about this. If you have people moving back to the rural areas where they live in or where they st still have family in and maintain their voter registration from there, presumably there is some remittance going back from the center to these rural areas as well, and then some local investment going on. Why are these local areas still not developed infrastructurally? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because I think you're completely right and there are signs of things changing in a way. Uh, out of a couple of things. One, as you were mentioning, is the remittance of people from the city. Uh, another one, it's a kind of growing uh, number of people who are migrating from the villages, but not to Bangkok, but uh, abroad. And so you have a very big number of, say, people from Isan, which is the Northeast, who are working in the Middle East, um, who are working in Europe, and in some ways, part of what is happening with them is this idea of bypassing Bangkok completely. Um, I give you a very specific kind of silly but significant example. A few years back when, you know, when I was in Bangkok, you would go to, say, um, you know, working class discotheque or nightclub in Bangkok, and you would hear music that was playing in, say, New York three, four years before. But if you go at the same space in the countryside, you would hear music that is played in New York right now. And there was a sense of precisely people saying, well, we actually are starting to look at another Bangkok future, but it's an international cosmopolitan one. So there is that dynamic that you're describing, and I think things are changing. For instance, there's a town uh, in the Northeast that now has become the second biggest city. It's 20 times smaller than Bangkok, but it's the second most significant city in the country. Uh, the problem, and I think part of the demand that people ask, is that the state is just not investing. So I give you a very specific example related to infrastructure. There's all this conversation now about high-speed train connected China to Southeast Asia. And there's one line of this train that will go through Thailand. And the idea is basically for China to gain access to the Chinese Sea uh, through uh, the Eastern Seaboard, which is an industrial area close to Bangkok. Now that train would pass through the Northeast, but as it is playing now and is planned now, it will not stop. So you have the Northeast being this massive corridor for this mobilization, but with no station. So it's precisely to give you a sense of how the state it's kind of not considering these spaces as central to the infrastructure, if not as spaces that you need to pass through. I want to pick up on infrastructure because I really like the way you describe infrastructure in your book, which is that infrastructure is more than just a static object. It is dynamic. It is generally a circulatory mechanism that circulates things like power, energy, uh, water. And it is not just an assembly of things, but it also helps assemble sentiment and assemble emotion. I want to talk about the assembly nature of, uh, of infrastructure, especially in migration. How does infrastructure, especially in Thailand, inform migration patterns of people from rural areas to urban areas and maybe their interaction back to their own rural home city or town? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's, that's really, um, it's really a good question. I mean, part of what, basically the story I've told you so far about economic change could actually be told completely as a story of the role of infrastructure in organizing this migration. So let me kind of tell you this other side of the story. The other side of the story, you could basically, you, what you see, especially if we take the Northeast as an example in its relation to Bangkok, 
is that part of the migration happens in the 1950s and 60s and really starts in the 1950s and 60s out of the construction on, of railway and highways connecting Bangkok um, to this part of the country. And that building of highway was actually very much part of the Cold War and of an American plan, um, which they had in a lot of insurgency areas in Southeast Asia of transforming battleground into markets. So the idea was, if you build an infrastructure that makes commodities easy to move in and out of this area, people would be attracted into a market economy. And by being attracted into market economy, they would drop the fight. Right? And that's the kind of model that has been used internationally during that time. So you have a kind of initial thing of you, you build a transportation infrastructure and from inside that transportation infrastructure, people and goods start to move. So you're assembling the nation in a different way to those choices. Right? And then once you get this moving, you have a second phase of infrastructural assemblaging in a way, which comes in with cell phones. Right. Um, there's a very kind of interesting discussion in the 1990s and early 2000 in Thailand, where a lot of people in the city and a lot also of progressive thinkers like uh, Marxist thinkers or Buddhist thinkers, they start to criticize this idea that the moment that people from the countryside have some money, they buy phones. Right. And it's, it's something that we hear in, in England or in India or anywhere of like, oh, as soon as people have money, they buy iPhones instead of sending their kids to school. Now, the problem with that kind of analysis is that it doesn't understand that cell phones are not just a status object, which they are, but they also are an infrastructure. They allow communication to happen. They allow people to have access to resources, to English, um, to international news, um, to way of thinking, to conversation. So similarly, I think the, the kind of diffusion of cell phone became the structuring infrastructure that allowed people to move to the city without really moving, being able to talk um, to their family and to their friends con constantly, right? And I think, you know, if you think about the times that we're living in, think about doing COVID without cell phones, without Zoom, without a camera, without a computer, and the kind of mobility that allowed having the infrastructure and the way it structured our life, even as we're locked down into our homes. We've spoken a bit about uh, physical mobility so far. What about social mobility? How does infrastructure help inform social mobility? Are there certain occupations that tend to have aggregates of migrants taking them up, such as you described um, motorcycle taxi drivers. Why are these occupations the ones that attract the most migrants? And is there any social mobility within Bangkok and outside Bangkok? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think there's two elements, right? There's a kind of simple element, which is to work as a motorcycle taxi drivers or to work as at, um, like a housewife or to work as a street vendor as a quite easy access, right? You buy a motorbike, it's quite cheap, you can work. And you don't need that much specialization. So there's like a, a very simple explanation to this, which is these are jobs, they have easy entry, they don't require the investment, they don't require you a lot of training, you can just start tomorrow. So that's one aspect. But the other aspect which connects more to what you're saying is that these are often jobs that allow you also to enter in contact with people who are from a very different um, socioeconomic background from you. And a lot of what my work has been with these motorcycle taxis precisely to try to understand how not only they move the city physically, but they try to use their trajectory inside the city to achieve social mobility. And so there, there is definitely an attempt through this job uh, to enter in contact, build favor, client pattern relation or friendship simply to people who can open doors for you, right? Which in some ways is the reason why we all migrate. Like there's a, there's a sense of which each of us has migrated in our life when we have migrated, precisely the idea that that migration will open, up, will open doors for us. And so there's very much what is happening there, I think, is this attempt to say, if I put myself in a position of circulation, then I can actually move my life along the same channels that I participate in building. So I think that's very much part of what they're thinking as they migrate. 
So from what I understand from this, there is a bleed now where you have a originally isolated, perhaps regionally isolated social group that has now migrated into the city and their sentiments, emotions, their wants from the government are bleeding in across socioeconomic strata and across socioeconomic backgrounds to perhaps maybe the social elite and the economic elite. How does that change the nature of social movements in Bangkok, especially when the grievances are rural in nature and are being bought up by these people who are interacting with maybe the social and educational elite in the city? Yeah, I think, I mean, to me, there, there's, a, there's a kind of early 20th century discussion on why do people mobilize politically, um, which I think it's quite, it's quite interesting to look at from the point of view of what we're discussing. Because basically the idea is that it's not actual inequality that makes you mobilize, but it's the perception that something could be different. Right. So the idea is that you are experiencing or seeing the possibility of what a state like Thailand can actually offer to people. And then you feel excluded by it. And so in a way, it's not it's not by chance that precisely these people who are you could call them urban villagers, right, who are migrants, but they live in the city. They're actually very active politically. Uh, precisely because they see in their everyday life what it means to have, you know, a successful life in Bangkok. Now, if you were remaining in the countryside and you were a farmer in a village quite remote, probably you wouldn't have that much of that perception, right? Like the, the alternative reality would be so far away to be kind of confused, right? And obviously, I mean, this, this was maybe more true 20 years ago now because of media circulation, images, Facebook, it's quite easy to see how the 1% live, if you want to put it that way. But there's this kind of relationship between the two, which I think is also what makes students, university students, historically particularly active and particularly prone to those kind of mobilization. Because you are, in a way, in a moment of your life where you're supposed to be thinking and building the future for yourself and for others. And you have experiences of what the blockages for that future are. You know, you see where, you know, you think about mobilization uh, around the globe now, and you really cannot really think about them without thinking about precarity and the fact that we are a generation in which the perspective of a good, stable job seems harder and harder to achieve. Therefore, there's a sense of injustice built in in that process. So I think that's what connects the two um, kind of social movement. Interesting. Um I want to take a step back again before we before I start focusing on student-led social movements and talk sure. about 2006 anti-coup protests, especially because this was after Thaksin had come in, after Thaksin had led, to, after Thaksin had implemented a lot of social reform that wasn't there in Thailand before. Were those anti-coup protests more uh, centered around rural farming communities because Thaksin had given a lot of SME economic stimulus? decentralized the state a lot more than anyone else had decentralized the state before. Did Thaksinomics and Thaksin's rule lead to more regional and social integration in Thailand? And has that informed today's political landscape? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think in some ways, I mean, Thaksin is a really complicated figure to, to kind of parse apart, right? Because you have someone who was the first prime minister in Thailand to to conclude the mandate and to win a second election with massive majority. I mean, he won a one-party majority of like 60% of the vote. So he was able to harness both in the countryside and in the city, at least originally. Um, but uh, this is someone who was a media tycoon, a billionaire. So there's a kind of puzzlement of how did, you know, countryside voters identify themselves in this, you know, billionaire who somehow was... Uh, presenting itself as a as a pro poor uh, social activist, right? So part of this kind of confusion is because um, there's there's a number of things at play, right? You have on one side this issue of exclusion, like what it means to be excluded from the central power, and Taksin weirdly could present himself as being excluded from that central power uh, because he was not from Bangkok because he has a narrative of himself as self-made man. So there, there's a kind of history that, that he builds uh, with this mystique. And then once he become prime minister, 
Taksin's idea was basically to develop the country in two different economic models. A capitalist model, uh, kind of neoliberal model for the upper class, and a more socially conscious model for the lower class. And the idea was basically we want to make our worker more competitive by giving them social insurance, by giving them health, by giving them uh, economic support, by giving them grants, and so on and so forth. So you have these things where someone who is like that actually end up distributing resources outside of Bangkok back into the countryside. And that's what people really liked. What people really liked is that they saw him as someone who was seeing their struggle, who was saying to them, you are part of this nation, and in fact, you kind of got the short end of the stick so far, and it's time to change. And that was also what made a lot of traditional Bangkok elite extremely mad, right? Because they saw this, whether they were conservative pro-monarchy, they saw his powers taking away from the power of the monarchy on one side, or even if you were progressive, if you were a progressive urban person, you think, oh, here you have this kind of uh, vendor who is buying votes from the ignorant countryside, right? So you have these two kind of dominant uh, argument being there. And there was this pushback, as you're saying, by people after Taksim was taken away from power, say, there it is. This is another example of whenever we actually get our way, you're taking away our representative. So Taksin was in many ways an extremely authoritarian figure, suddenly become this hero of democracy that he never was. Um, precisely because people were saying, you know, he, here is an example of the fact that even if you are a billionaire, even if you are a prime minister, if you remain one of us, they will take you out and they will take away power from you. So in many ways, it mobilized that, that, that narrative in such a strong way that brought into years and years of mobilization until the 2014 coup that took away, again, his power. Now, what we're seeing right now is something a little bit different because it's, there's a sense, I think, um, at least among students in Bangkok, that Taksin has taken too much um, space in a fight for democracy. The fight for democracy has become a pro or against Taksin, and this is not very helpful. So there is something changing right now in the way that Taksin is kind of exiting the political scene. Uh, but I think of what a lot of what is happening now, it's trying to understand how does this rural base or urban working class base that support Taksin gonna interact with the students base that actually talks about democracy and doesn't talk about Taksin at all. But they sound so similar to me because if Taksin was a media, media conglomerate owner who's very rich and could relate to rural masses, the Future Forward Party and the Thai Rak Thai Party, the, the Future Forward Party's heads and leaders are also people that have multi-million uh, Baath empires of media behind them, as does Thai Rak Thai right now, and they are the main political opposition. Why are they in opposition to one another and aren't they the same thing? I think, I mean, I think this is, I think this is a really good question and it's, um, it's like the paradox in some ways of what we're seeing in Thailand over the last years. Because in many ways, at least at the political stage and in parliament level, you could see all of this as an intra-elite fight, right? So you have a certain elite, which is pro-monarchy, pro-military, um, more Thai in a way that it's claiming that democracy and one person, one vote should not be the political model of Thailand, opposed to another elite that says, actually, we want to be cosmopolitan, we want to have um, a democratic kind of one person, one vote structure. So at some level, there's that tension, right? What, tell, what puts them apart, it's, um, and I did quite a bit of research in the last years with actually very conservative um, political actors, and what pulls them apart is a kind of political ideology about how should this country be ruled, right? And again, it's a political ideology that connects very much to other dynamics in, in East Asia and Southeast Asia, right? So you, you have this kind of conservative elite saying, we are an Asian nation, and as an Asian nation, Western democracy doesn't work for us. Uh, we're culturally different, uh, we relate to power in a different way. 
So that doesn't make any sense. That's an external imposition. And then you have the other side who says, well, actually, that's not true. Obviously, we would have to make it work for our system, but we want that model as the best model available um, around. And so in many ways, I think you're right. They are, like, if you were to do a classic class analysis, it seems like none of them should represent the majority of people at all. Um, but I think it's, things are a little bit more complicated than a, classic, a classical class analysis. You're seeing really um, this kind of political ideology coming at the forefront of what the struggle is. Okay, uh, that, that does make more sense because I think this elite capture is a big issue in Thailand, but it's not made out to be an issue among voting classes at least. Uh, let's talk about students because I think, and let's come and focus a bit more on the present day protests because they're taking off now. Presumably, because all the cultural capital and all the universities of Thailand are located in and around Bangkok, you have some mixing of rural student populations and urban student populations informing a general voter consensus in students. We've spoken about this before, but once again, why are protests, especially in the case of Thailand, generally started by high school and university students? Why are they at such a unique space in the political sphere that they can lead social movements in the most powerful ways that they do? Yeah, I think, I mean, again, I think there's a number of reasons, right, besides what we discussed before. I think, first of all, there's a kind of a very interesting recognition in a way of um, like formal education as a, a political capital in Thailand, um, historically. And there is a sense, you know, like even to me, it was very surprising when I started doing research on, on Thailand and in Thailand to realize that um, university professors there are extremely public figures. Um, you know, they, they lead social movement, they have TV programs, uh, they are like extremely known figure. They have millions of followers on their Facebook page. So there's this very specific configuration where to be a teacher um, carries a very strong social capital. Um, and in some ways also to be a student. So there's a level of respect toward uh, kind of formal education, which is really interesting to me. And that, um, you know, I think like in the so-called West, it's something that we've been losing over the last decades, uh, but that's not the case there. So I think there's that aspect. And also, as you were saying, there's the, the kind of 1970s protest where so central um, to the political narrative of democratic Thailand that somehow has a mystique attached to it. Now, what's really interesting when you look at the 1970s protest is that basically you have a military coup taking power, then you have a, a student protest happening, winning, surprisingly, then you have three years of this super open government, and then you have another coup happening in 76, extremely violently, and many of the students get in jail, run away to, to the countryside and become like guerrilla fighters, or run away abroad and, you know, whatever. In the 80s, you have this kind of um, bringing back these students into society. And these students were active in the 70s as anti-military and anti-monarchy uh, organizers. They now rule the country. If you go in every side of the political spectrum, it's all people who were part of the movement. You go in business, they're all people who were part of the movement. So there's these really strange things that happen where they were, you know, progressive, um, and in some cases, guerrilla fighter, like they fought in the jungle. And then they came back to the elite role that they always had. They ran the country. And so there's something about that and about the, the fact that this kind of generation have their ear open to students because they see themselves in them. That actually has a big role, uh, I think. Today, just today, like before your interview, I was reading up, and there's two members, the students are asking a reform of the constitution that was passed by the military. And there's two members of the military party, extremely conservative, extremely um, known senators, that actually are very open to the student request. And when you hear their interview, they're basically saying, you know, they are less like us. They are like what we did in the 70s. So there's also a weird process of 
kind of identification that I think is going on, which was not going on at all with, with rural um, mobilizers, right? The idea, like, I mean, when you read conservative response to the protest by rural people in 2010, they talk about them as animal, they talk about germs, they talked about them as cockroach coming to the city. That's unthinkable with the student protest, right? Even the urban Bangkok elite conservative, they're like, oh, these are us. These are, they are like us. And they, you know, and we will listen to them at some level. And so I think that's why the governments historically, especially the military governments, have been very worried of student protest. Because student protest have a kind of um, moral high ground that you know other protests don't have in the country. And yeah, there has been some degree of continuity between like student protests in the 70s, student protests now. I think when I was reading up on this as well, there is a large role of symbolism in these protests. So for instance, you have the Democracy Monument in Bangkok becoming a big center for protests 1970s as well, right now as well. Now students are adopting Western-centric symbols like the three-finger salute from Hunger Games. What's the role of symbols in protests and are they actually powerful or are they just like things to please people? Yeah, um, I think that's really kind of fascinating. And in some ways, I think it goes back to the discussion we were having before about um, this kind of rural, more grounded in local reality and urban protests more grounded in international uh, symbols and, and discussion and, and organizations. Um, so the funny thing of the protest in the last months has been actually the use of all sorts of pop culture symbols. The three finger salute was one that was started right after the, the coup in 2014. But basically the biggest protest that has happened until now, which was in, in August, um, one guy who is probably the most prominent lawyer, kind of civil rights and political rights lawyer in Thailand show up at the protest dressed as Harry Potter. And the old protest had Harry Potter team. Then the LGBT group in the protest say, no, Rowling is transphobic. So they create the trans wizard protest, which was like trans Harry Potter uh, protest. Then you have a series of protests that were built on a character from a Japanese manga. Um, as the symbol of the protest. And I think those symbols are very powerful because they do two things. One thing is that they allow um, people to speak through codes. Now, Thailand is a country in which you have a very strong less majesty law that protects the government from any, the monarchy from any critique. So if you say anything about the monarchy, which is negative, whether it's true or not, so it's not a legal law, you get three to 15 years of jail. And this has been used extremely strongly. Now, for instance, the protest with Harry Potter, what was the meaning? The meaning was that this lawyer was talking about Voldemort, which in Thailand is the king. So it's someone whose name you cannot pronounce, uh, but somehow it's always there and it influences uh, what happens. So there's like a use of symbol precisely to be able to codify what cannot be said. That's actually really interesting because if people are incorporating symbols, is the message still preserved or is the message getting lost because this just looks like a fancy high school protest where people are dressing up and acting like they are part of an anime? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a, that's a really, and that's a really, really good question in terms of understanding the, or try to understand the relationship between uh, the role of symbol to illuminate something and the risk of using symbol to cover something. Um, and I think a lot of people have been kind of um, worried about those kind of um, symbolic protests. However, I think there's something about a long history in a place like Thailand of having to use symbols and codes to speak about what is in front of everybody's eyes. Um, so there's, I mean, what is new about it, in a way, is the use of um, the specific use of pop culture reference. But even in the past, like for instance, when I arrived in Thailand, it was you know 2004, I think, the first time. 
people were not really talking about the monarchy, right? Now there's a more open critique of the monarchy. There's kind of, there's a space for having this conversation, even in the public sphere now with the students, uh, which really ask for a reform of the monarchy. But what I noticed then was that people, the few people that I get sense that could talk about the monarchy always use the word Elvis to talk about the king. So it was the king. Or then it became Burger King. People would talk about Burger King. Then the last majesty law in the constitution is law 112. And 112 in Thailand is the phone number for Domino Pizza. So people were talking about pizza. They would be like, oh, like, what do you think about pizza? And what they meant is, what do you think about the monarchy? So I think there, there's a long, really long standing history of the use of codes to speak about something. Now, the problem, as you're saying, with symbols is often that there's a risk of overcrowding, right? There's a risk of constantly changing them and then having a hard time following what the development is. And in some ways, I think these protests are doing that and are like kind of overlapping symbol over symbol. Um, and there's, there's a whole discussion among activists of will these symbols translate outside the city? Right. So, for instance, like the same students were now part of this movement. In fact, some students were part of the movement and then became and then became part of the Future Forward Party, even candidate for the Future Forward Party, did organize some protests years back, also using certain symbol. And one of the protests was going to a subway stop to read in front of everyone George Orwell 1984. To, to like kind of make a statement about how uh, the authoritarian system operates in the country. The problem with them, for instance, was that a lot of people in the countryside, the people I work with, had no idea what 1984 was. So, you know, a symbol assume a collective system of reference on which you are able to see. First, see, okay, that's Harry Potter. Secondly, what is the secondary meaning of Harry Potter? Thirdly, this is what they're saying. And so the, the risk sometimes is that if you don't have that common reference, that you start getting a confusion, which could be there, yeah. So even if there isn't, though, a collective understanding of what symbols mean, is there a collective conception of what freedom or democracy means to people in Thailand right now? Yeah, I think, I mean, it's interesting because that's a question that I asked a lot in different places at different people, like, because... Uh, What's, what's funny, and I think, I mean, it's funny of our era, not just of Thailand, is that everybody, whether they are um, complete conservative who think people should not be given vote, or if they are like radical anti-monarchist, they all talk about democracy as the objective, right? There is nobody now that goes out and say, you know what, we want an authoritarian system. That's what we're fighting for. Right. But they define democracy in very different ways. So a lot of the work they've been doing in the last years is precisely try to understand, OK, what do these people mean? And for some people, some of the conservative people, they say democracy for us is the government of good people. And so which means it is the government of us, because no one thinks that they are the opposite side is the good people. And so there, there's that understanding. And then there's like a variety of understanding. I think what connects most of the people who support the protest, it's very basic idea of democracy. So it's equal opportunity, equal access to vote, equal importance of my vote. So it's fairness, right? There's a system of economic, electoral, and educational fairness that they're talking about. Now, even inside the protest, already among the students, there's two kind of side they are emerging. One do we saying, okay, we need the military government to go home. We need a new constitution. We need new elections. That's it. That's our objective. And then you have another side. They say you cannot have democracy in Thailand with the monarchy having the political role that they have. You need to have a real constitutional monarchy. The monarchy can stay, but has to be outside of politics. And that's already a break, right? That's already two very different ideas of what the objective looks like. Um, and so I think obviously you have very different groups having different claims to what democracy is. So because there is this kind of factionalization in people's conceptions of what the ideal democracy is, is that why democratic reform has not been sustainable in Thailand or are there other reasons that contribute to it? 
I mean, I think that's an aspect for sure. Um, but I think, I mean, again, you could go, you could go on a culturalist dimension and try to explain out of like a certain cultural frame, um, which often I'm not a great fan of because I think part like often this culturalist argument are a toolkit of political protests or political opinion rather than actually analytical tools. So, you, you know, if I want my country to remain undemocratic, I say, oh, Thailand is not ready. Um, you know, it's not ready for democracy, so we can't have it. But I think to me, there, there's another explanation, which it's more materialistic maybe, but I find more convincing, at least in the, in the short run, which is really the role of military power in Thailand historically, and the real tied connection between business and conglomerate, the monarchy, and the military. And that has to do really with a specific decision, right? So Thailand has one of the largest army and the most rich army in Southeast Asia, who has never fought a war outside of his country. Thai soldiers have never been in a war, basically. But the, all of their fight is actually in the country. So strangely, you have a Thai military which is much more directed to control dissent inside Thailand than to actually do out. So for instance, when you have big political protests in Thailand, when they become big, it's not the, the police, it's the army that comes in, right? And so historically, you basically have a country like Thailand who since the end of the absolute monarchy in 1932 had 20 military coups, of which I think 15 were successful. So you have a very long history of the military coming in. And that was, I mean, that was in some ways the result of a post-Second World War decision um, where the US and the women side of the world had to make a choice about how do we deal with the Thai army. And they decided that instead of doing what they'd done in Japan or in Germany to try to take apart the army, they decided that the army were actually their best allies against communism. And so they gave enormous amount of money and power of the army. So until, to me, until that's somehow out of the picture, you will not be able to have democratic <laughs> stabilization in Thailand. I, I just want to ask two last questions and then I'll let you go because it's been a long interview. I think the first one is just, obviously urban migration has been happening for the past 50, 60 years and it started in the 19th century, as you said, with Chinese migrants. Uh, surely there's problems to it. Like there's only a finite amount of space that you can urbanize in Bangkok. What are the biggest problems to urban migration or that urban migrants are causing in Thailand today? And how do you solve them? The problem are massive. Like the problem are massive. Like the problem of having like a one giant city in a country, it, there are humongous. I mean, in terms of all sorts of different things. Like you have, again, a basic infrastructure that is strained. You have, Bangkok is a sinking city. And this has nothing to do with water level rising, right? B Bangkok, it's literally sinking. Basically, the amount of people that live in Bangkok have consumed the water underneath Bangkok. And as an effect, you have empty space under building and the, the, the soil is going down like a few centimeters a year, like an insane amount. So you have massive environmental problem uh, to begin with. Uh, with overpopulation, you have pollution problems, um, you have poverty problem, you have resources distribution problem. And in many ways, that has been um, the really funny things of this obsession with growing Bangkok. Is that, you know, Bangkok has been seen now by, since like 40 years as this dysfunctional city. And the government has called in advisors, consultants, all sorts of people to try to figure out what to do about it. And what everybody has said to them in the last 50 years is you need to move people out. Basically, you need to develop other cities so that people don't all move to Bangkok. So there, there's, a, there's a kind of argument for decentralization, which as you're saying, it's like a problem-based argument. It's not political discussion. It's we, we need to distribute 
people and resources and infrastructure out, especially as we have a city that is sinking, <laughs> literally sinking. Um, so I think that there's, there's massive problems on that front. Obviously, there's also, I mean, I think part of the difficulties to talk about migration in a way that is not uh, kind of bluntly racist, um, it's that there's, there's a push to say, oh, you know, diversity is great and like the, the coming together of people who are different, it's wonderful and it should be celebrated. But the problem with those kind of readings is that you often end up dismissing the fact that diversity is complicated. That having very different people together, it's actually very hard thing to do. And it requires a lot of work. And, you know, it makes people feeling like they're losing their home, regardless who these people are, whether you're from the countryside or from the city. So there are pretty strong social consequences to massive um, concentration of diversity without the work to actually make it work together. And so I think there's also, I mean, there's a pushback from a lot of people in Bangkok with this idea of being surrounded by people. Now, the pushback now, it's not very much from with people from the countryside. It's often with urbanization of migrants, uh, Burmese, Cambodian, because obviously it gets wrapped up in like racial language. Um, but it's a very similar thing, right? Like there, there's an idea, I think, that you have these dangerous people coming in. And, and I think... In some ways, that cannot be so easily dismissed as saying, oh, that's just racist thinking. Because there, there, is, there is something about um, the difficulty of, of putting people who are different together uh, that needs to be acknowledged. So I think there's also that dimension in, in, in the problems that, that comes up. And lastly then, what next for the Thai protests? Why are these protests different? And do you think that they're actually gonna solve anything if, they are, if and when they are successful? All right. <laughs> I mean, on the second question, frankly, like I, um, I don't like, I'm not in the business of reading <laughs> in a crystal ball. So in some ways I, I don't, I mean, I frankly don't know. And I think, you know, I think history keeps proving us that that prediction are often pretty ridiculous. Um, but that said, I think, I think what we can do quite, confidently is to try to at least play out and, and, and sketch out some of the, the points of potential friction or potential success or failure. Um, it seems to me that one, the biggest one for the protest, and there's something that they're thinking about very closely when I talk to organizers, is that they are trying to figure out precisely the question that you kind of ask. How do we bring together these people who were active in 2010, the red shirt, the so-called red shirt, into this protest. And at first they were like, no, we are new. We are a different protest. We are students. We are a different group. We don't want to go back to that thing. And they really took distance. And now recently they started to say very positive things about the previous protest. Precisely because they realized that unless they're able to merge this student movement, they won't be able to, to make a big change on a big scale. So I think that's one, one issue. The other issue connects with what you were asking kind of before about the Future Forward Party, which is this party that was built after the coup that did very well in the last election and then it was um, outlawed by the military. In many ways, many people of that party are in conversation with the activists now in the city. And so the question is, will they create another kind of party structure? And again, there's big discussion of should we become a party or should we not become a party? So I think that's another node. And the third node, frankly, is the ability of the military to actually keep up with their power. Because, I mean, the country struggling is an economic crisis like most countries around the world right now. Um, and so there's an issue of will they be able to hold power? So in, in some sense, my, my answer to you would be this is a chapter of a much longer history. And it's a chapter of a much longer history, as we were saying, between two conceptualization of how a country should be ruled. Like should be ruled by the will of a majority or should it be ruled by the will of good people? 
and those two um, those two type of power, those two type of idea, um, they always existed in Thai history. It's not new. I don't think it's like oh, the wave of democracy that is winning over the wave of authoritarianism. I think those two elements are at play. I would argue in recent human history. I mean, like you could see these two elements, you know, in the U.S. or in the U.K. or in India or in Thailand or anywhere really. Those kind of two different models of what we think an effective government should be, and I think they're they're at play, and we'll see what shape they take. Well, excellent. I think just lastly, do you have any book recommendations or popular media recommendations that people can pick up and better understand maybe the Thai protests or generally urban social movements and urban migration and social mobility? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, on Thailand, there's two. Um, there's a website called Prachatai that had both English and Thai version, which is really good uh, in kind of tracing what is happening. And there's another blog called New Mandala uh, that actually covers all of Southeast Asia. And it's this really interesting experiment of asking journalists and academics to talk to one another. So it's, it's kind of, uh, it's more in detail than a newspaper, but it's less annoying than an academic uh, piece of writing. Uh, that and in terms of, oof, in terms of social movement, there's so much coming out right now. But I think, I mean, recently we had um, one of you know the the best, I think, anthropologists of our generation, David Graeber, um, died too young, and I would suggest to take a look at whatever he has been writing in the last years. All right, amazing. Thank you so much. Incredible. Thank you very much. This is great. Thanks. Thank you.